How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. Therefore, whenever we sin through a mental attitude sin, an overt sin, sin of the tongue, then at that instant we're out of fellowship. We That rapport with God is broken. We no longer enjoy that fellowship with God. God the Holy Spirit is no longer uh, working in our life in order to produce forward momentum and in our spiritual growth, and so we need to recover. The recovery process is simply to uh, confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and at that instant we are restored to fellowship and recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and we can resume our forward momentum in the Christian life. Remember, the issue isn't to get in fellowship. The issue is to stay in fellowship. That's why Jesus said, uh, emphasized abiding in him. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening, that we have this opportunity to uh, meet freely, to proclaim your word, to study, to investigate the truths, the doctrines that are revealed there, that we may be taught by God the Holy Spirit through your word, and that you might use this to strengthen us in our spiritual life. Father, we live in a time where there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of uncertainty, there are many evil forces at work against this nation, against uh, Christianity, and against us as believers. And the only source of strength comes from your word through God the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you might strengthen us and prepare us for, indeed, if we face difficult times, and there are always challenges of one sort or another, but if things were to get uh, very, very difficult, then the only source of sustenance that we have is your word. And we pray that that might be very real to us. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And our topic this evening, still part of our introduction to Romans chapter 9, is to deal with some of the background issues that relate to Christians and Jews. And this is an important section, the foundational section in the New Testament, as I've been teaching for the last several weeks, on why God still has a plan for Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. He has not turned his back permanently upon Israel. There is a temp- temporarily shift, temporary shift in God's plan as he focuses on this new spiritual entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 known as the church. 
and the churches on this earth during this time period, since A.D. 33, until the rapture of the church. And we don't know when that will be. We know it will be before the period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, a reference to the fact that the focal point of history shifts back to God's plan and purposes for Israel because he will fulfill his promises to Israel through the Abrahamic covenant and through the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. So we looked at the fact that there have been two horrible, horrible errors that have plagued Christianity down through the 2,000 years of the church church age in relation to Israel. The first is replacement theology. Replacement theology, and that forms the theological foundation for the second error, which is anti-Semitism. Now, what formed the foundation for both of these is really a, a view of, of Scripture, an interpretation of Scripture that we refer to as, as uh, um, allegorical or a spiritualizing method of interpreting the Scripture. This came gradually came into uh, influence in the church during the second century and became more formalized by the end of the third century, fourth century, under um, first origin and then Augustine, so that from the time period of roughly 400 uh, A.D. until 1500 A.D., roughly speaking, just approximate dates, 99.9% of Christians operated on this kind of allegorical interpretation where church didn't mean the church and Israel didn't mean Israel. The Israel in the Old Testament was the Old Testament church, so Israel in the Old Testament meant church or meant Christians, and in the New Testament church meant uh, Israel, the spiritual Israel, and under replacement theology, the uh, Jews were completely set aside uh, by God because they were the ones who crucified Jesus and they had rejected the Messiah. So for that, in, in, in replacement theology, they are permanently and completely replaced by the church. So there's no significance today for the Jewish people. There's no significance today for Israel. There's no significance today for any kind of future uh, future plan for Israel. And that is typical of covenant theology, Calvinism, uh, Roman Catholic theology, a lot of these uh, other theological systems other than dispensationalism and all other systems form some some uh, uh, some degree of replacement theology. Now, as I pointed out in the past couple of weeks, replacement theology has become a, a, a strong negative. So people today, no, 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 I don't believe in replacement theology because they've identified it with what produced the Holocaust. So on the one hand, they say, we don't believe in replacement theology, but on the other hand, they say, well, the Jews can't say they're the chosen people because if they're the chosen people, then God still has a purpose for them. So, And that's still replacement theology. If you say the Jews aren't the chosen people, that's replacement theology by another name. You just don't want to be associated uh, with it. But we know in our foundational verse I pointed out the last few weeks is that to the Israelites, God says, that to whom 
pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. They still belong to Israel according to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 4. And the foundation is the Abrahamic covenant, which was uh, summarized in the first three verses of Genesis 12. It is an eternal unconditional, unilateral covenant or contract between God and Abraham. In Genesis 17, when the covenant is actually cut, that means when you have the formal ceremony, God caused sleep to come over Abraham. They had laid out the sacrifices to establish the covenant. When God caused that sleep to come on, fall upon Abraham, then God alone, uh, symbolized by a, a fiery pot, moves through between the sacrifices, that indicates that God alone is binding himself to this contract. It's not bilateral. It's not conditioned upon Abraham or anything Abraham does. God is the one who bound himself to fulfill that covenant, which means it's an eternal, uh, everlasting covenant. Now, it's important to understand this issue related to interpretation, that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, Make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. That was articulated by D.L. Cooper, David Cooper, and it's a great um, Great summary of lit- literal interpretation, the normal main use of language. Now, this is really important, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Just this week, uh, I got a new book, Hot Off the Press, from Oxford Press. Uh, I think it's titled, "More Desired More Than Their Own Salvation, something like that. And it is a book, ri- I'm not even sure who the author is. It just came off the press. I got, I pre-ordered it six or seven months ago, and it is a history of Christian Zionism. The author has his PhD from Baylor University, and in, in his bio, which I had not been able to find before, I discovered that he is a evangelical Lutheran, and that which is generally a replacement theology system, I mean, denomination and that he also serves with the World Council of Churches on their on their Palestine-Israel board. Now, that tells you a lot about his, his, his slant, maybe. And I've read through the introduction, I've read through his conclusion to get his focus and his orientation, and I haven't seen anything that set off really big bells. He looks like he has a lot of uh, really good scholarship. I'm sure there are going to be things I find uh, within it. But what I found interesting is how clearly he understands the issue of hermeneutics in this whole uh, in this whole topic related to understanding the role of Israel. He is um, he's going to he has a chapter which I haven't read yet. I just read a summary of what he said in the uh, conclusion on William Blackstone and William Blackstone's um, <clears throat> document that he had his petition that went to President Grover Cleveland in 1891 in order to secure the formal support of the United States government uh, to support the return of the Jewish people to their historic national homeland. He predated, um, he predated the rise of official uh, Zionism, 
uh, by six or seven years, so that later on in 1915, Louis Brandeis, who was the head of the uh, <clears throat> Zionist Organization of America and later to be a Supreme Court uh, uh, point E by uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, Louis Brandeis said that it was not Theodore Herzl that started modern Zionism. It was a Christian by the name of William Blackstone. So he's very significant, but in his discussion on Blackstone, he points out that what Blackstone was doing was using a combination, which is real typical in the 19th century as dispensational dispensationalism was developing, uh, a combination of literal hermeneutic, literal interpretation, and historicist interpretation. So he understood that. In fact, he also understands very clearly and accurately that this is the same thing that dominated too much of, uh, or he wouldn't say too much, I would, uh, dominated a lot of the popular prophecy and pro-Israel uh, speakers in the 20th century, like Hal Lindsey. Hal is loaded with historicism. As soon as somebody looks at the Bible and says, ah, look at what's happening here, you've got a lineup. Joel Rosenberg's doing this right now. You've got a lineup and an alliance between Iran and Turkey and um, Libya and Russia. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39. See, all of a sudden you slipped into historicist interpretation. Now, I know I see people going, what's historicist interpretation? Think about interpretation, looking at the future in terms of three tenses. You have past tense, you have present tense, and you have future tense. We are futurists. We believe that all the prophecy in Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation from Revelation 4 on is all future It's all future. That means that in the church age, you cannot go and look at some event going on today and go, ah, this is fulfilled prophecy. Can't do it. Now, now there may be things setting the stage for the future, and I think that in, in a vague sense, you can say that the return of the Jewish people to the land today is is at least the precursor of the initial, the return that has to take place prior to or at the beginning of the tribulation because there has to be a national people, a national government in place to start the tribulation because the tribulation doesn't start with the rapture like some people think. The tribulation starts according to Daniel chapter 9, uh, 24 to 27. It starts with the peace treaty, the covenant that's signed between the Antichrist and Israel. Well, you got to have somebody who can sign a peace treaty in, for Israel in order for that to start. So the kickoff on that that time frame of those uh, of the seven seventy weeks uh, or the seventieth week of Daniel uh, has to start by a, some sort of national government in Israel being able to sign this this peace treaty, and then everything dominoes uh, dominoes from there. But what we're seeing now is, I think, prophetically significant. I think I use that phrase because it's not a fulfillment per se, but it is an indication that God is working because today you have roughly five and a half million Jews that have returned to Israel. Now, some people want to say, well, that's not important. Well, that's because you're ignorant. 
basically, I'm going to call a spade a spade. There's never been a significant return of the Jews to the land of Israel. Somebody might say, well, what about during the time after the Babylonian captivity? Well, you only had 40,000, 45,000, I think, come back with Ezra. You had a few more come back with, uh, uh, with, uh, you had some come back with Nehemiah, a few more come back with Ezra, but you never had a huge amount. You never had more than probably 30% of of the Jews returned from the diaspora uh, at the time of Christ. Most of them, the vast majority of Jews at, during the time of Christ lived outside the land of Israel. So you've never had a period in human history where you've had such a huge number, almost, it's almost half. There's about about 90%, about 45% of the Jews live in Israel, 45% live in the U.S., and the other 10% scattered around the world. So they're very close to a time period where they're going to have more Jews living in Israel than outside of Israel. And that is, I think, a historically significant event in terms of uh, the fact that this is a full-bore, irreversible restoration of the Jews to the land. Now, does that mean the rapture is going to occur tomorrow? No. But it does mean that God is continuing to set the stage for the events that will take place during the tribulation. And the tribu- one of the titles for the tribulation is a title that it's a time of Jacob's wrath that focuses us on, on the fact from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, that this is a time focusing on Israel. This is not a Christian viewpoint. Now, one of the things that, that I've become aware of uh, over the last uh, seven or eight years is that in the uh, intellectual community out there, especially the anti-Christian Zionist, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic community, there is this idea presented that the only reason that Christians want Jews to get back into the land and to support Israel is because when Jesus comes back, uh, he's going to, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed, and so this is really a plot to get all the Jews back so two-thirds of them will be, be uh, killed. So see, you're really anti-Semitic, and that's sort of their, their orientation. But what I try to point out, as I will in in passages we look at tonight, all of these passages from the scriptures that talk about what eventually happens with the Jews in the end times come out of Old Testament prophetic context. They don't come from Revelation. They don't come out of Matthew 24 and 25. They come out of Old Testament passages. That's where we get those uh, all of those numbers. Now, in previous lessons, we looked at the issues of hermeneutics, the issues of related to replacement theology, and then last week I started with part one on anti-Semitism. And so we're going to continue with that tonight in the second part. Last time I looked at an, one event in the Old Testament related to anti-Semitism. And then uh, today I want to look at... Uh, why anti-Semitism, why the world hates the Jews, why the Jewish people are unique among all the world's peoples and have engendered such hatred, such antagonism, and such violence that is, that's unique to them. Now, there are certain ethnic groups that have historically hated each other and fought each other, the Turks and the Greeks, 
the British and the French used to hate each other and fight each other for a long time, and that's you know that's beyond the scene now. And other groups have done that, but but not there hasn't been any other group that has engendered world hatred. Now, last time we looked at some of the um, uh, some of the uh, different uh, definitions for anti-Semitism. And the one that I focused on is the one from the Anti-Defamation League, which states that it is the belief or, be- uh, the belief or behavior hostile towards Jews just because they're Jewish. That's the key phrase, because they are Jewish. Blaming the Jewish people coming up with conspiracy theories, that it's the elders of Zion, uh, that uh, whatever it is, but it's Jewish capitalists or it's Jewish Marxists, or but it's the Jewish people because they're Jewish, that they're the source of the world's problems. So it can take many different forms. It can take the form of religious hostility because they uh, turned their back upon Jesus. It can take the form of economic hostility because they have too much money to influence. It can be political because they have uh, too much influence. But the issue is there is a hostility and prejudice towards the Jews because they're Jewish. And you go back to Revelation chapter 12, and we realize that uh, that in Revelation chapter 12, I mean, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 3, those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel uh, will be cursed. Now, last time I put this particular slide up on the on the board, and I want to come back to it, but this traces the hostility of of Satan to the messianic promises set forth in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 15, where uh, God had promised, the, had, had promised the serpent that uh, he would put in between, between the serpent seed and the woman seed. And so uh, Satan is alerted that there's something to do with the descent, the human descent from from Eve, and so before the call of Abraham, before there were any Jewish people, there was this assault on the seed of the woman. Starts with Cain's murder of Abel, the, the invasion of the uh, sons of God, the fallen angels taking human wives in Genesis six one through twelve. You have situations that then began to develop. Uh, in relation to the seed of Abraham with the attempted uh, rapes of Sarah and Rebekah as they are put within a uh, uh, the harem of either Pharaoh and later uh, Abimelech the king of the the king of the Philistines the attempt to cheat uh, Esau out of his birthright and the enmity between Esau and Jacob and the uh, fear that Esau would kill Jacob, who's the one through whom the line would go. These are all different uh, aspects. The murder of the male children in Egypt by Pharaoh, uh, the attempted murders of David by Saul. Uh, later on, Queen Athaliah attempts to destroy the royal seed, uh, then you see Haman's attempt, we studied last time in Esther, the attempt to slaughter the Jews. Now, some people try to argue that this is anti-Semitism. The first clear event where the Jews are being targeted by other human beings as Jews is the event in Esther. 
and most of the literature related to the historical development of anti-Semitism, uh, they, they, they at least mention this. They don't go back any, uh, any further. That's a satanic attempt to destroy the Jews. And we have to understand there's a difference. You don't have hu- other human beings seeking to destroy the Jews because they are Jews until you get to this event uh, with with uh, Haman's attempt to have all of the Jews in Persia uh, destroyed and uh, and executed. Later on, you have other attempts to the idolatry of the uh, of the worship of Moloch and other idols for killing the children of uh, Israelites, and then Herod's attack against the children of Bethlehem to try to destroy the seed, which was Jesus Christ, and then other attempts during the life of Christ. So. What I want to do today is look at the framework for all of this, which is given in Revelation chapter 12. While Revelation chapter 12 depicts a future event that comes towards the end of the chapter, what happens in the way in which the Apostle John writes in in Revelation, he will often introduce a new topic and then he goes back to pick up historical threads so that what he is, what he says about, uh, this situation in, in terms of its future significance is connected to a historical flow. And so that's what happens here. Now in Revelation 12, verses, uh, <clears throat> 1 and 2 we read, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, there are five great signs in Revelation, and uh, in this chapter and chapter 13, we have, uh, we have three of them. And these are the woman clothed with the sun in 12.1, and then there's a great red dragon in verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. The, there are, there, this word sign is used three times in chapter 13 in relation to the second beast. Now what happens in this particular section in, in, um, in Revelation is that there's a pause in the action. Uh, you have the first seal judgments which occur during the first half of the tribulation. That brings us up to the time when the Antichrist really uh, exposes himself uh, as the he wants to be worshipped in the temple. This is when he destroys the two prophets that have been uh, challenging him through the first half of the tribulation period. And then we come to this, uh, the, this announcement of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11. Then there's this pause that occurs where, where John goes back to connect some dots for us, dealing with the woman, the child, and the dragon in chapter 13, and then the two beasts in chapter, uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, the woman, the child, and the dragon, and then chapter 13, the two beasts, and then chapter 14, where, uh, again, he focuses on another set of people, the lamb, who is the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and the 144,000, and that 
and these are not temporal. He's not discussing these in a temporal order, but it's sort of like a a uh, uh, a playbill that you get if you go to the theater, and it identifies who the cast of characters are. And if you read a little summary of the play, then it gives you a little bit of an idea and overview of what the action is. So here we have the introduction of a woman who has a who is depicted as being clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garment of 12 stars now see you can read that and you can read this in isolation from the rest of the bible and you can sit there and say well i wonder what that could be and you could be like a lot of people in studying prophecy, and they just try to sort of generate out of their own imagination what they think these symbols could be. But God doesn't give us his word in that way. God's always very clear, and the symbols that we see in the book of Revelation are not, um, are not just generated by the Apostle John. Uh, at this point, I want to say something that that when you read a lot of this literature about, uh, th- and there's been a lot published in just the last ten years about Christians who support Israel, they they don't those who are opposed to Christians supporting Israel often act as if we just sort of generate these theological ideas abstractly. It's that, that we don't get them from the Bible. But that's because they come to the Bible with a non-literal interpretation. Now, as Christians who believe in a literal interpretation, that doesn't mean that we don't believe that there are symbols used in Scripture. But those symbols are defined in Scripture so that we can interpret them. Uh, we know that, that this is not literally a woman who is clothed with the literal sun, and she's not standing on the moon, and she doesn't have a literal 12 stars surrounding her head. This is a vision, and it's a picture, and each of these elements means something. So we have the woman, and we have to discern the, the significance of the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Well, this... As I pointed out, this didn't come up for John. He didn't generate this while he's on the Isle of Patmos. This vision that God gives him is designed to connect to an Old Testament passage. And this takes us back to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, Once again, we see the principle that the Bible interprets itself. You don't have to go uh, gaze at your navel for 24 hours uh, go in the peyote tent with uh, uh, some Western Plains Indians, smoke dope, uh, or whatever else people do in order to somehow come up with what this vision means. It's real simple. You just study your Bible. People have to know their Bible. Genesis 37 tells us about Joseph, the favorite son uh, of his father, of his father Jacob. And Joseph is, uh, as a young boy, he's a little pretentious. He's daddy's favorite, and he has a couple of dreams that he's uh, that he wants to tell everybody about because he knows that that they mean that he is something special in the plan of God. So he gets a little bit of a big head over all of this, and ends up irritating his his father, and it irritates his brothers. But beyond that, we understand the significance of the dream. Uh, now, we're told in Genesis 37, 9, now he, Joseph, 
had still another dream. This is a second dream, both indicating the same thing of his preeminence in the plan of God over his brothers. And he said, Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, in Genesis 12, we have 12 stars. In Je- I mean, in, in Revelation 12, we have 12, 12 stars. In Genesis, there's 11 because Joseph is the 12th one. Okay, that's why there's a number difference. And so he tells his father, he's got the same images there. You think maybe they mean the same thing, that somehow Joseph's dream is designed to help us understand what what John is seeing on the Isle of Patmos? So he relates this to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I? See, Jacob understands this. He understands that he's the son, that um, Rachel, Joseph's mother, is the moon, and that the 12 stars or the 11 stars represent Joseph's 11 brothers. He's very clear on that. And so he he understands that, and he mentions, as shall I, that is, he sees himself as the sun, your mother, the moon, and your brothers, the 11 stars, actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground. So Genesis uh, 37 gives us the uh, identity of these symbols that are used in uh, Revelation 12, uh, 12, 1. The great sign that appeared in heaven is a woman clothed with the sun. So who's the woman? The woman is Israel. The woman is Israel. She is clothed with the sun, Jacob, the moon, Rachel, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, the twelve, uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in verse two, we're told, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this is the ultimate destiny of Israel is to give birth to the Messiah. So Israel is depicted here as the woman, and she's pregnant, and she's going to give birth uh, to this child. So she cries out in in um, in labor and in pain uh, to give birth. And we learn. Then we see the second sign in verse three. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. So we have this beast that shows up, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. Now, where do we go to find out the significance of this? these symbols? You've got to go back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, when you have the uh, uh, Daniel sees a vision of uh, the different kings, that come out, the different beasts that come out of the sea representing different kingdoms. Uh, when he comes to the last beast, this is a beast without description. He just can't put words to it. And that last beast is the beast, uh, that relates to the end times kingdom. And that beast has uh, ten horns and one, the little horn be, gobbles up three of them. So ten minus three is seven. Just a little basic math there. And so this is why the great red dragon has seven heads, because the Antichrist, in his rise to power, uh, conquers three of the kingdoms of the, of the ten, 
And so this is why you have ten horns. That represents the original ten kingdoms. The seven heads and the seven diadems represent what happens after the conclusion of that event described in Daniel chapter 7. So we've defined uh, the dragon and the seven, and the, well, we've defined the second part, the seven heads and the ten horns, and the dragon represents this end-time kingdom that is empowered by Satan. And it's interesting how you have this imagery of the serpent Nahash back in Genesis chapter 3, and this reptilian creature uh, becomes connected to uh, to Satan, and it's clear that the dragon is Satan. Now, a lot of interesting connections we can talk about there, but that'll give us off, uh, take us off track. Revelation twelve four is his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So this is the time. Now this is a future event. This is a time when Satan is going to be cast out of heaven and he's going to take with him a third of the stars of heaven. The term stars of heaven is frequently used to describe the angels. Uh, They're metaphorically described by the term stars. So this is where we learn that a third of the angels, the original angelic creation, followed Satan in his rebellion. And then we read, oh, and just another little point for you, uh, in Babylon which is the center of all the action, literal, historical Babylon in the future. is going to be uh, going to become a rejuvenated power base. But the symbol for Marduk, uh, the patron deity of Babylon, was the dragon. And remember, Babylon is going to be a major focal point in the rise and the power of, uh, of the Antichrist during the, uh, during the period of the, of the uh, Revelation. So the dragon, then we're told, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So this is Israel about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he, that is the dragon, might devour the child. So what this depicts for us is what I already described from looking at those various events from the Old Testament, is that the satanic uh, the, the satanic strategy from the announcement of the, of the, of the, the first really announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would uh, kill the seed of the serpent. From that point to the cross, the strategy, the mission uh, for Satan and all of the fallen angels was to prevent the seed, the seed of the woman from coming into human history to provide redemption for the human race. And that is a prophecy of the one of the, it's the first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, and all of them are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, or excuse me, to be more precise, approximately uh, half are fulfilled in the first advent. The rest are fulfilled at the, will be fulfilled at the second coming. But the the first one is is a prediction that he's going to be true humanity and enter into human race as the seed of the woman. So she the woman here gives birth, and the mission of the of the of the dragon has been to destroy the child to prevent salvation. So in verse five we read, and she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, this is the verse that gives us real clarity on who the 
uh, who this child is, because the child is said to have, have the purpose of ruling all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, how? where do we get any information about that? We get that from the Old Testament. We get it from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 2-7, the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, that term is used in the second verse of the, or third verse of the psalm, and the Messiah, the anointed one, is speaking and says, I will declare the decree. He's in the future. He will declare a decree that had already been decreed by God the Father. So the anointed one, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, will declare this decree that the Lord has said to me at some point in eternity past, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now that prophecy is fulfilled in Daniel 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a scene there after the Daniel has seen the four kingdoms, the four beasts come out of the sea. He, he sees a vision in heaven where uh, the Son of Man, which is the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man goes before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and says uh, and asks for his kingdom. And that occurs at the end of the seven years of the Great Tribulation. And so that's what this is, uh, an allusion to God the Father, says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now, right now, God the Son is sitting in a passive position at the right hand of God the Father, uh, awaiting the time when he will ask for the kingdom. And he will ask for the the nations as his inheritance and the earth for his possession. And then the father says to him in verse 9, this is the point we're looking at, you shall break them, that is the nations, with a rod of iron. Now what has already been going on here back at the first part of Psalm 2 is that the nations are enraged against God and his anointed one. This occurs at the prelude to the battle, the campaign, literally, of Armageddon. And all the nations come together to fight God. And the Messiah will come, and he will break the nations with a rod of iron. So that's where we get this rod of iron terminology. So who wields the rod of iron? It's God's Messiah that wields the rod of iron. So when we look at Revelation 12.5 and read that the woman Israel gives birth to a son uh, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, that connects this future ruler that she gives birth to to the prophecy in Psalm 2, the Messianic prophecy in Psalm 2. So that ties it all together for us, but you can't get that if you don't know your Old Testament. This is why knowledge of the Old Testament is so crucial, especially if you want to understand anything about uh, the book of Revelation. So she gives birth to a child who will uh, to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child will be caught up to God and to his throne. This is one of my favorite pictures on the ascension. 
the 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 uh, disciples are there and all they all you see is the feet of Jesus at the top of the frame because he's headed up to heaven and they must have been they've never seen like you you and I in fact there was just an event in Houston today where they were uh, honoring uh, Neil Armstrong who was the first uh, uh human being to walk on the face of the uh, the moon and so um uh we many of us have grown up with the NASA space program we we saw uh, Shepard and John Glenn and all the others going up in the early Mercury program and then the Gemini program and then the Apollo program. Watching people take off in an airplane or go up into space in a rocket is not new to us. But in the first century, to watch somebody just, just go straight up in the air was something they had never seen, imagined, or thought of before. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes up, and they're jerking their heads up. I just think they, the artist here just captured a great image here. A little uh, shows the humor, uh, a little bit of the humor in this situation. And so we're told from uh, Revelation twelve five, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and His throne, where Jesus is today at the right hand of the Father. Then in verse 6 we read, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman is Israel. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Now what you don't see here is that between verse 5, where the child is caught up to his throne, and verse 6, at least 2,000 years goes by. This is not unusual in in understanding prophetic literature where the author just hits the high points and leaves a lot out in between. So the woman is going to flee into the wilderness uh, where she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Now that's three and a half years according to the prophetic calendar, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so 360 years in a, 360 days in a year. 1,260 days is, is three and a half years. And so this relates to the second half of the tribulation period. Because if you remember in Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus said, when you see these things happen, you flee into the wilderness. And woe unto you if you have child or any number of other circumstances and because immediately you need to head uh, out into the wilderness. And this wilderness area is is not in Judea proper. They would head south. Uh, we'll, I'll have a map up here in a minute. They'll head south and then they'll head over across into what is now the kingdom of Jordan into this desolate area around Petra, which was a location of an enormous city uh, governed by the Nabataeans back uh, before the time of Christ. And God prepares a place there where God will take care of them because they're being attacked. What we learn from all of this is that Satan hates Israel. Satan had a plan in the Old Testament to destroy the seed, and often that took the form of an attacks on Israel. In the 
church age, the only thing left for Satan, because he's been defeated at the cross, is to try to somehow frustrate God's plan for Israel. And if he can stop God from fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God would give them the land and that they would own the land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never owned anything in the land outside of the cave of Machpelah, which is located in Hebron, and outside of a small uh, piece of real estate that uh, 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 Jacob had up around Shechem, there was nothing that they owned in the land. But God promised them that they would own all of this land from the uh, Great Sea to the River Euphrates, and that all of this was going to be theirs. And they never owned it in their lifetime. So when are they going to own it? God's got to fulfill that promise by giving them ownership of that land when they are resurrected and brought back during the uh, during the millennial kingdom. But if Satan can stop that by killing all the Jews so that God can't give that promise, as long as there's one Jew alive, God can still fulfill his promise. Uh, if God... Um, if God is prevented from uh, giving that promise, then Satan can say, checkmate. You might have defeated me at the cross, but I checked you, and you can't be God. You can't control all these volitional creatures that are doing their own thing any more than I can, and so you really can't be God either. Uh, that's the agenda in the angelic conflict. The first stage was to block the coming of the uh, seed, and the second stage is to block the, pro- the fulfillment of the promises of God to the Jewish people. And so uh, just to fill in a few gaps here on this particular prophecy, then the woman fled into the wilderness. And where is this wilderness? Well, in Isaiah 34, 6, we're told the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. This is a picture of the great battle that will come about during the during the tribulation period and especially at the end, the campaign of Armageddon. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's sated with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has sacrificed, where? In Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So there's this picture here that there is going to be in the end times. It's never happened historically, so it's unfulfilled prophecy, that there will be a great slaughter in Basra. In Isaiah 63, 1 and 2, we read, Who is this who comes from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel. See, this is terminology used only of deity, who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then he says, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This is clearly the Savior that is coming to deliver Israel. And then Isaiah writes, why is your apparel red, your garments, like one who treads in the winepress? Why? Because what we just read in Isaiah 34, 6, there's been this sacrifice, this slaughter that occurred in Basra. What was slaughtered? What was slaughtered were some of the armies of the Antichrist coming against the Jews. Uh, Micah 2.12 recognizes this as well. Uh, In Micah 2.12 we read, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep, like sheep in the fold. Now, the Hebrew word for a sheepfold is Basra. Now, Basra is a location. We just read that he's coming from Basra. 
like a flock in the midst of his pasture, they will be noisy, uh, noisy with men. Um, I got this. Uh, here's the map. So here you, we see uh, the gr- large green area. Here is the area of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. We have Philistia over here on the uh, on the west. This is the area from just north of Gaza here down along the uh, Mediterranean coast. That's the area now known as the Gaza Strip. And then uh, these other cities, these are the uh, major cities of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and uh, Gerar. And these, uh, some of these, Gerar and Gath and Ashdod and Ashkelon, are all in part of Israel's territory today. Only Gaza is part of the uh, Palestinian territory. This is the location of Jerusalem here. And south of Jerusalem, we have uh, Bethlehem. Uh, it's only about four or five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, not very far at all. And south of Bethlehem, uh, it's it, down towards Hebron. It's a huge, vast, desert, barren landscape. Uh, except for a few areas. So what will happen during the tribulation period is at the halfway point when these signs become clear, the Antichrist has exposed himself in the temple to be uh, worshipped as God. When uh, believers see that happen, they are to head to the hills, literally, so that they will be pro- can be protected by God. And they will head south, down past the end of the uh, Dead Sea, and then across uh, into the wilderness area of ancient Edom, which is now modern Jordan, to Basra, which is roughly in the same area as Petra. And they will head there, and then there they will be protected by God until finally, at the end of the tribulation period, when they're almost completely destroyed, they will finally turn and call upon the name of the Lord. And then that is when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and he will uh, defeat their enemies that are, uh, that have them under siege in that location. And then he will lead them in a victorious uh, march to free Jerusalem from the Antichrist and to defeat the forces of the Antichrist and the false prophet as they head up. And that's what's being pictured here is his return from uh, Basra when his garments are are covered in blood. Now, this is what I'm describing here is the ultimate defeat of anti-Semitism will not occur until the end of the tribulation. This is what Christians believe based upon uh, what Revelation says, if you hold to a literal interpretation. But much of this also comes out of the Old Testament because these prophecies in Isaiah, Micah, uh, have not been fulfilled yet. So they have to be fulfilled at some time in the future. Now, all of this, this entire scenario of anti-Israel, anti-Semitism is based upon this angelic warfare, this angelic rebellion that took place at some point in eternity past. We're told in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 that there was a creature, the highest of all the angels, the most intelligent, the most beautiful, uh, the most talented and capable and skilled of all of God's creation, 
and he is filled with pride and rebels against God. He wants to be worshipped like God. And at some point, uh, God is going to bring judgment upon uh, Satan and his angels. Matthew 24, 25, 41 says that he's, God has prepared the lake of fire for them. Already, it's a perfect tense verb indicated completed action. So the lake of fire has already been constructed. Now, why aren't this, aren't Satan and his angels there? I think there's a number of reasons. It's not simple. You can't just give a one-shot answer, but I think they're all related. It's a complex of answers. And I think at the root of that complex of answers is the challenge that somehow this doesn't fit the righteousness of God. How can God, how can a righteous God, uh, and a just God, loving God, send his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? This is a major issue today. There are a lot of evangelicals who are turning away from a position of eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's because we've turned into a bunch of weenies and wimps. Uh, and it also reflects the fact that as a, as a, a culture, contemporary Christianity has a very weak view of sin and total depravity. Uh, the Calvinists do, but um, many others do not. And what happens, the issue is that at the, uh, at the temptation of Adam and Eve when they chose to sin, they plunged the human race into, into spiritual death. And as a result of that sin, they brought all of the horrors of human history into reality. Famines, wars, meteorological disasters. We can just think of all these horrible things that have happened to people, the tremendous misery that has occurred. And it's not because somebody committed genocide. It's not because somebody was a racist or somebody was an abortionist or any of these other horrible crimes that people think of as the most egregious sins. All of these things happen simply because a lady ate out of a piece of fruit. An innocuous act, something that people can do all, people do all the time. That's what precipitated all of this, but that action of eating the fruit was in rebellion against God. And any act of, of autonomy or independence or rebellion against God, no matter how innocuous it might appear, has the most incredible, horrible consequences. And that's why an eternal condemnation in the lake of fire is absolutely and totally just. And so what God is demonstrating through human history is that this act of Satan's rebellion, the act of Eve eating the apple, are not these little innocuous acts that have limited consequences, but they are so enormously horrible beyond anything we could imagine that that an, an eternity in a death of fire in, in the lake of fire is a totally justified uh, judgment and punishment. So all of human history, therefore, is located within the context of this angelic conflict, and that is what we get out of Revelation chapter twelve. There's war in heaven. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. 
And then we come to Revelation 12.8, and they were not strong enough. That is, the devil and his angels were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now, that doesn't happen until midway through the tribulation period. Now, as I pointed out in our Revelation study, this makes the last half of the tribulation really weird, because right now in the church age, demons and angels are invisible but they're going to become visible during the last half of the tribulation. And one reason for that is the tribulation is bringing to a conclusion all of these different streams of creatures and their relationship to God that have uh, been part of the angelic conflict and the final judgment that occurs in this great conflagration in this uh, campaign of Armageddon What happens there is that it brings everything to a conclusion. At the end of that battle, Satan is going to be bound in uh, the abyss for a thousand years. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown straight into the lake of fire. Uh, By by assumption, I believe that most of the uh, uh, demons are going to be sent to the lake of fire at that time. And there is judgment upon all the all the human beings in history in terms of their their uh, are the 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 resurrected uh, Old Testament saints are resurrected? Uh, tribulation saints are going to be resurrected. Church age believers have already been raptured, and the dead, the rest of the dead, won't come up until the end of the tribulation period. I mean, excuse me, the millennial period at the Great White Throne Judgment. But it's going to be at that. At that conclusion, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, that there's judgment. Now, it's not the total end yet, because there's going to be a time when Satan's released for one last shot at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. But what it shows us is that human history is all designed to relate to this angelic rebellion, and that's why we have anti-Semitism. And it's the only reason they can truly explain why there's one ethnic group in all of human history that A, has survived for so long, and, and B, uh, has become the, the uh, focal point of hatred and violence and vindictiveness by most of the human race, at least uh, by the descendants, other descendants of Shem and the descendants of, of Japheth. So Revelation 12, 8 says that... Uh, the the demons were not strong enough. They were no longer found a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil. This is the passage that connects the dots for us in identifying the serpent from Genesis uh, 3 uh, to the devil and to the great dragon. He is the one who is called uh, Satan, the accuser, Shatan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So they will be on the earth. They're going to be visible during that last half of the tribulation. It's going to be weird. You talk about that that bar scene from the first Star Wars movie where you have all the weird creatures in the bar. Yeah, it's not going to be too different. It's going to be weird. Then we read in verse 10, Then John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. See how he's how John has telescoped all of history into this one chapter. And he says at that point with 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 the last half of the tribulation, this is going to be the time when the wrath of God is really poured out upon human history and this is when God is going to finally bring to an end um 
the judgment on everything. It's going to take three and a half years in those final uh, trumpet judgments and bowl judgments to cleanse the earth of all this, all this sin. So we read in verse 10 that I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before, day, uh, before God, our God, day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, their, their life even when faced with death. Now remember, millions, if not tens, hundreds of millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation period. And these are the ones who are, are speaking, speaking here. Now, in verse, uh, 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So the persecution from Satan is going to intensify during the last half of the tribulation period. This, we're not going to interpret this like a historicist and say this applies to anti-Semitism today because it's talking about after the angels have been thrown and Satan have been thrown out of heaven. It's not talking about before, it's talking about after. So it's going to be intensified uh, during the second half of the tribulation period. And what happens as a result of his direct assault on the Jewish people at the, during the last half is that God is going to miraculously and providentially protect them. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness. God is going to supernaturally protect them, them to escape into the wilderness, into Basra, where she'll be nourished for a time, one year, a times, notes the plural, two years and a half. So that's three and a half years. That's the same number, uh, relates to the same number of days we talked about a minute ago. Uh, this image of the woman escaping on eagle's wings comes out of Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Was there an eagle flying them out of Egypt in Exodus? No. See, this is the imagery here, the metaphor. is It's a picture of how the eagle's power and protectiveness, and so God is going to, uh, through his power, protect them in their escape. In Revelation 12.15 we read, And the serpent, uh, that's the devil, the dragon again, pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. This is a depiction of the armies of the Antichrist in hot pursuit of the Jews as they are seeking escape into the area of Basra. In verse 16 we read, And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. I think that means that God's going to uh, miraculously protect them through some sort of earthquake that causes them to be just just absorbed into the earth like the uh, judgment on uh, the priests, on Dathan and Abiram and the, and the rebellion of Korah. I'm going to skip the next slide, which ties it back to Matthew 24. Revelation 12:17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That would be the Christians uh, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This ties somewhat to, I'm not going to read the passage, Isaiah 41:17 through 20. 
and also to Deuteronomy 32:10 through 11. You can take a look at those passages later on. But what happens during the end of the tribulation period, to wrap things up, is there's going to be this destruction of two-thirds of the Jewish people. Now, in today's context, this is often brought up. You see, you Christian Zionists, you just want to get all the Jews back there, and so two-thirds of them are going to be killed. I've always wanted to raise this issue with, with, with some people who hold that. In the Old Testament, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 5, verses, verse 2 and verse 12, of the first destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. And Ezekiel predicted that you shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. A third of the Jews were killed during that first destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. Uh, When the days of the siege are finished, then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter into the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. And Ezekiel 5.12 says, One-third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one-third shall fall by the sword all around you. That's two-thirds now mentioned in the second verse. So the statement that two-thirds of the Jews being killed during the tribulation period is not an anti-Semitic statement. We're just stating what Ezekiel said. And that's the number that's picked up also uh, later on by, by Zechariah, two Old Testament prophets. This isn't New Testament church stuff. This is Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Zechariah 13.8 says, It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. So there is a return back to God that finally occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Now, one other comment on this. If we carefully read through the, 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 bowl, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments of Revelation, what we discover is that uh, a quarter of mankind are killed during the seal judgments. A third of those who are left are killed during the trumpet judgments. That means that half of all humanity is killed during the uh, during those the first two series of judgments in the uh, tribulation period. That's half of all humanity. So when Christians say and teach in terms of prophecy what the Old Testament, what the Jewish prophets said, that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed uh, at this time, not by Christians and not by Jesus. They're protected by Jesus when he comes. Uh, they're killed by the armies of the Antichrist and Satan. Uh, what we are, what Christians are simply saying is that this is part of the overall destruction of humanity during this time. We're not, nobody's singling out the Jewish people. This is not, uh, uh, an example of anti-Semitism, but that's what it's claimed to be. So now we understand how all of this fits together. It's part of Satan's plot in order to uh, defeat God and to destroy the Jewish people. Now, next time we'll come back and get back into the verse-by-verse exegesis of Romans chapter 9, which emphasizes God's future plan uh, for Israel. With our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to see how you have a plan that extended from 
approximately tw- uh, 2100 BC with the call of Abraham all the way into the future, into the uh, period known as the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Daniel's 70th, uh, 70th week, into the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, that there is a plan for the church and a plan for Israel, and that you will be true to your promises, your faithfulness is assigned to us in the church age that you will be faithful to your promises to us as well. And so we can rely upon your faithfulness that no matter what happens, we are secure in our salvation. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.